2: And welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And Romolini, it's been a big week for you. Your podcast debuted. It debuted. It came out. It's very
3: exciting. We're going to talk about that. Um, we also have slipped it into the, the EIF feed by this point. We slipped a first episode in with no ads, if anybody wants to go back and find that. Um, yeah, it is a big week, you know? I mean, what does it all mean? It all looks so good to the outside world, you know, every time you launch a project. Because I know how it is when I see somebody launching a project, I'm like, oh, how did they do that? You know? And it's like, it doesn't mean anything. The, the, the joy for me, honestly, is the, is the work itself and the puzzle of the work itself. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm doing a lot of interviews. People seem to like it. I'm really happy about that. But of course, in a creator economy and late stage capitalism, I'm like, well, what's next? Somebody hire me. Somebody fucking hire me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Scary. It's all fucking. It's of course. It's like that's the way it is now. Fifteen years ago, you used to be able to live a little bit better as a creative person. I think a little bit more um, with a little more security and
2: stability. And I don't think you can anymore well, there were there were decently paying outlets, you know, and I don't think there are anymore. And it's one of the things that really worries me about New York because I think creative young people have stopped moving here. I think you're right. I mean,
3: I was listening to a podcast that was saying um, that creative people, it was, a, it was people from Philly, and they were saying that um, creative people, a lot of creative young people live in Philly. And part of that is because they can afford to live there, but part of that is because they know... They have a lot more freedom in Philly because they're not in that really competitive environment of mm-hmm. New York. They're not going to get chewed up and you know spit out. And I think that's a new way of thinking about work. I think that um, we all were like, well, let's get chewed up and spit out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The sooner the better. <laughs> exactly. 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 Um, I watched part one of the Brooke Shields podcast last night. I mean, not podcast, the documentary. The documentary. Yeah.
2: I, I it's on my list. It's on my list. And I do want to watch it. I was obsessed with her as a teenager and we were the exact same age. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was obsessed with her too. I had pictures of her from people magazine cut out
3: and put, on, I made a collage of her. <laughs> did you really? I did. I did from people magazine. Um, Yeah. It's interesting because I had not realized that feminism, the second wave feminism, because men were like, Well, if you're not going to be sexualized by us, we'll just start sexualizing children. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I didn't, I didn't clock that because I was growing up in it. Yeah. But if you really look at pretty baby, but I would even say more the blue lagoon is just yeah. it's porn. Yeah. It's yeah. it's kitty porn. It's crazy. It's crazy
2: that we let that happen. No, it is crazy. And I think Brooke Shields is very, she had like the ultimate horrible stage mother who she's pretty, you know, decent about still keeps, takes the high road about, but you know, her mother was the one who insisted that they make a big deal out of her virginity. Right. Well, I mean, it makes sense
3: that you'd want to make a big deal out of her virginity. I mean, I don't even know. I don't The thing is what makes sense in this. I mean, to be fair, the mother was an alcoholic and suffering from alcoholism, so you know who. And it sounds like she had a really rough go of it. Mm-hmm. It's, but anyway, it's really interesting, and it's another one of those like retreadings of history that's been happening a lot, lot more and more. You know, when we look back at like Lorena Bobbitt, or we look back at Monica Lewinsky, and we're just mm-hmm. like, oh, we really fucked those people
2: over. Oh, God. In the biggest way, Lorena Bobbitt and Monica Lewinsky are two really key examples of women who did not deserve the shit that came their way. And they were, you know, they were sort of bullied before internet bullying existed. Totally. And it's scary. It's scary to think about
3: and it's scary to think about what we're getting wrong now.
2: I was just thinking that who are we, who are we coming down way too hard on and who's getting away with everything? Well, I mean, Look at look at Britney Spears. That's not that long ago. Look at what we did to poor Britney Spears. Yeah,
3: Lindsay Lohan too. It's just like I don't know. I don't know how much progress we're making. Wow, this is a really positive intro that we (laughs) have here.
2: (laughs) No, it is. It is. I mean, some of the problem with like kids, you know, kids becoming famous is that they're kids. We used to see this all the time with models, you know, who would suddenly they'd be very very young. Yeah, often still teenagers, usually still teenagers. And in an environment that is way too sophisticated for them, surrounded by people telling them how beautiful they are. Yes. Yes. And that's that's their chief value. And that's their chief value. And 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 I mean, I can't even think of all the things that don't develop normally because of that. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, I was,
3: um, I, well, speaking of models, this has nothing to do with anything. I saw a video on social media of Giselle uh, dancing in, in Brazil, I think. I
2: saw that too. She looked really happy to be divorced. I
3: was like, good for you, Giselle. Look at you. <laughs> Look at you being amazing and so like so hot. I haven't
2: seen her yeah. in a long time. She's so sexy. She's always been really sexy, and she looks exactly the same. Exactly the same. Good for her. I was very happy about that. Um, good on Giselle.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, so we have a really good episode today. We've been yep. wanting to do this episode for weeks, and we were so glad we finally got together with Susan Dominus. Um, do you want to talk about what this episode is? <laughs>
2: Susan Dominus wrote a piece for the Times Magazine a little while ago um, that was widely shared about what people have gotten wrong about women and hormone therapy. That's right. And menopause. And menopause. So it's, yes, of course, and menopause. And so it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a really interesting and exceedingly informative episode. It really is. It really is. There were points where I was like, am I smart enough to be having this
3: conversation? But, you know, I made it through. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that every week with you, Jen. Oh, God, no. Um, Well, all right. Well, let's get into it. Our guest today is Susan Dominus. Susan has worked for the New York Times since 2007, first as a Metro columnist, and then as a staff writer with the New York Times Magazine. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. She has studied as a fellow at the National Institutes of Health and Yale Law School. Susan is also a lecturer in journalism at Yale University. And her most recent piece, Women Have Been Misled about menopause just went viral in a big way, or recently went viral in a big way. Welcome, Susan. Hi, it's nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So your menopause piece hit a nerve with a whole lot of people. Can you briefly explain the
4: premise of the story? So the origin of the story is that Jake Silverstein came to me and said, I think you should do a story about menopause. And I held off for a couple of reasons. Um, To be honest, (laughs) and this is sort of the problem with menopause, part of me held off because I wasn't sure it was a topic that I wanted to delve into, you know, for many, many months and be associated with. And uh, I almost thought, like, why are they coming to me with this story, you -hmm. know? Uh, Why would they ever think of me for a story about menopause? But it's funny because my college friends, um, who were all going through this at the same time, basically said to me... Yeah, that's why you have to do this article about menopause is because people don't take it seriously enough and there's a lot of stigma around the discussion or it's not considered important and it is important. And I'm really glad that they encouraged me because I would say about halfway through the reporting of the story, I did start to think, oh, this actually might be one of the more important things that I've reported on in terms of um, actually information that could really help women and improve the quality of their lives. And you know, it's almost hard to find shibboleths these days. Like there's so much information available on the internet. It's not always easy to find like big misperceptions about massive health topics. And and yet this was one of them. It it really clearly was one of them. So um, I started looking into it. And as soon as I realized that um, there were, just anecdotally and through the research, it was clear that so many women had misperceptions about just how high the risks of menopausal hormone therapy were, Um, I felt like the Times could do a really great service by elucidating that and clarifying the history of that for women. And and it did. It really did.
2: Early in the story, a professor of psychiatry says that the lack of rigorous research into menopause, quote, suggests that we have a high cultural tolerance for women's suffering. It's not regarded as important. This just feels so misogynistic. I, I wondered at so many moments when I was reading your piece how angry you were having to report it
4: was I angry having to report it? I think I was mostly fascinated by uh, the story of Well, look, I will say that watching television, I often did feel very angry. I don't know if you guys have watched um, better things with Pamela. Yes. Yes, We love better things. Yeah. And she keeps going to these doctors who are like, you know, you're, yeah, you're in menopause and that's where the conversation ends. And I even almost felt frustrated. I I didn't watch the whole series. so I don't know if at a certain point she does decide to go on (laughs) hormone therapy, but you're watching her live through this and suffer. And she's not even providing women the information. I think there's a quick conversation with a friend and some people, People say yes, other people say no, but you know, and it's obviously not for everyone, but the idea that this is a valid choice, especially for someone who is suffering as much as she was, you know, that she's going to see a psychiatrist when she's in the depths of um, menopausal. Uh, clearly, she's going through a really rough transition. You can just based on her hot flashes. I think moments like that were when I felt like I cannot believe that even on this sophisticated t- not, ang- not angry at her per se, but right. just amazed that the conversation was still so. Um, under under clarified, I guess is how I felt. So I, I'm like screaming at the television like ask her about hormone therapy, you know <laughs> um, and and you know, I do think that there was just a lot of um, really just tragic, Um, strategic mistakes that the WHI didn't appreciate would have the impact that it eventually did. You know, the ways that they talked about statistics on talk shows after their foundings, you know, the foundings were surprising to them, Um, but the way that they uh, put that in context, I think was not ideal. And um, the way that, you know, people perceive statistics is complicated. So I think I was mostly fascinated and at times also very angry and also very sad. I mean, I was really sad you know i think about some friends whose doctors said like oh try this you know bee pollen extract and um it's not that they were on the bee pollen extract forever but it was 3 more months of you know spending money on something that wasn't going to really very likely work and 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 suffering for 3 more months or just the friends i don't know i had friends come to me and say my doctor said i can't be in menopause or because blah and you know, it's uncomfortable to be like, okay, your doctor doesn't know what your doctor's talking about and you need to change doctors. It was awkward at times. You know, friends who, they just, people really didn't want to hear it. It may be that like, maybe I come on as like a heritian. I don't know. But I mean, I definitely had friends who I knew were suffering from like, (laughs) I mean, these are really good friends, but I knew that they were just suffering from like really bad vaginal dryness and, I would say, well, you know, there's this topical and it's not systemic. And they would say, well, but my mother, blah, you know, had cancer this. And then it's like, well, I'm not going to like talk you out of that, you know, and it's not my job either. Um, But I just, I just felt sad that there was like a lot of needless suffering um, because people had ideas in their head.
2: Now, how did, how did these HRT drugs in the nineties were the most, some of the most prescribed drugs in the country, right? Yes. Yes. So. Um, so can you just take take the re- the listeners a little bit through like what WHI is
4: and what happened? And Yes, absolutely. So, so what was really interesting is that in the 90s, based on a couple of big observational studies, which are studies in which they look at people who made choices on their own for one reason or another, and then they look at what choices they made, and then they look and see what was the result. So women who chose hormonal replacement therapy, were they healthier than women who didn't? And they found that, lo and behold, women who had chosen um, hormone therapy seemed to have much better um, cardiovascular health or certainly coronary health than women who did not. And um, because of that and other biological reasons, people really believed that um, hormones, that estrogen was going to be this elixir of youth for women and was going to be really great for women's heart health. And the risks were thought to be low, cancer, in terms of cancer, but it wasn't really known and finally, the NIH, um, which was then run by Bernadine Healy, the first woman to run it, uh, who absolutely believed that estrogen was going to be great for women's heart health, um, they recognized that looking at observational studies wasn't enough. So they did a big, massive, longitudinal, randomized control trial that was going to last at least seven years. Um, it was studying other things like vitamins and low fat. Uh, I think it was low fat diets, um, and I didn't find much helpful there, but. Um, so they did this big study, and they, um, what they found after five years was that, lo and behold, it wasn't uh, better for women's heart health for women who had uteruses. I know this is a little bit wonky, but there is a, it's an important distinction. Women who have uteruses have to take opposing progesterone to stop the estrogen from causing um, a, an increased risk in endometrial cancer. So if you don't have a uterus, um, you can just take estrogen. If you do have a uterus, you have to take... What people were taking then was um, an estrogen and um, a a progestin, which was a a synthetic progesterone. Mm -hmm. So what they found was that there was an increased risk of heart heart disease, an increased risk of stroke and clotting, um, and also of breast cancer. After five years is when they started to see a divergence between the placebos and the um, people who were not on hormones. in the the group that had a uterus. And uh, it was very tricky because everybody knew about the WHI. It was a huge historical moment in women's health. It was the only large trial that involved only women like ever basically to that point. Mm -hmm. And they had a huge press conference in which they said, like, we're stopping the trial. You know, these hormones, not only are they not good for women's heart health, but they increase the risk across many factors and we're stopping the trial. In the press conference, somebody even did say, like, you know, for individuals, the increased risk is very small, but epidemiologically across a population, it does, it will add up. And um, at any rate, there was something about the panic feeling, I think, of holding a press conference to say we're cutting this historic trial short trials for ethical reasons have much more stringent standards of safety than a doctor might. So they're not weighing quality of life. That's not the job of the WHI, mm-hmm. but a physician is going to say, well, okay, let's look at what this risk is. Let's see what you're feeling. Let's see what your personal profile is, and then we'll make a decision. But you know, somebody theorized to me that so many doctors believed that estrogen even with progestin was going to be this incredible life extending quality you know um health extending heart extending drug and they'd been prescribing it willy-nilly to women of every age um right. one of the doctors i interviewed told me that she thinks that so many doctors just felt chagrin and shame and embarrassment that they had gotten it so wrong that they mm. couldn't they just went from zero you know from prescribing it to everyone to not prescribing it at all so that's one thing that was important the other thing is I think they didn't do a great job making this distinction in risk profiles so if you're in your you know 70s you're at much greater risk for uh, clotting or stroke than a woman in her 50s and so if you are going to have this small incremental risk um if that you know a small incremental risk on top of your Baseline risk, if it's very low, is no big deal, right? Like women in their fifties, generally, not always, but obviously, they generally have a relatively low risk of breast cancer. So, if you put a small increment, a twenty-six percent increase, of a you know a two percent risk or whatever it is, it, it doesn't add up to a lot, mm-hmm. right? But if right. you're now in your sixties and that risk is a little bit higher, or you're you know you're in your seventies and it's much higher you know, that's when people start to get a little more concerned. Same thing for clotting and same thing for stroke. You know, if your baseline risk is higher, then the increase on top of that is higher as well. Just like when your salary is higher, you're, you know, if you're sa- the higher your salary, the more meaningful it is to have this, you know, uh, well, let's say rate of inflation uh, raise that people get every year. If you can think about it that way. Right, if, you, if, you're right. not, if you don't make a lot of money, that raise means nothing. If you have a higher pay than that number, you know, that, that starts to add up. So, Basically, for women, and there's another theory that is still a little bit controversial. But the theory is that if you give estrogen to people while their system is still healthy, um, and it's about to it's about to change dramatically, it's about to face this like dramatic ongoing uh, total absence of estrogen. If you give it to them early, it'll keep the system healthy. But if you wait ten years after somebody goes through menopause, now their system has changed in ways, it's aged in certain ways. We do know that women's cardiovascular health catches up to it's generally better than men's but the same age until menopause and then women catch up to men let's take a quick break from some ads
3: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: And we're back. Part of the reason to use hormones and and to use uh, you know hormone therapy is to help with severe perimenopausal symptoms, right? And postmenopausal symptoms too, yes. Mm -hmm. Right, okay, but- Hot flashes. My understanding, because there were a couple of parts of your article that like sent chills up and down my spine. One mm. was the the hot fla- the connection between hot flashes and Alzheimer's, which was mm-hmm. just like what the fuck. I couldn't even like now every time I have a heart flash, I was like, is that
4: my brain dying? You know, well, <laughs> you know we don't know. We really don't know causality right. chain. Like it, it it you know it it is possible that it is simply um, that women who who are having, you know, cardiovascular um, uh, declines for one way or another, that that is partly why they're having the hot flashes. I mean, as you know, Rebecca Thurston did say, like, if you're having a lot of hot flashes and it's, you know, more than just occasional, but if you're like a super flasher, you're having 10 a day, 15 a day, Mm -hmm. get your health checked out. Like it is, there is a close association there, but whether the hot flash itself is causing that, it's a Theory and right. um, and I, I really do feel like the doctors were very interested in it, but they weren't even willing to like hint it at, at and hypothesize about which way it goes. I mean, so I would try not to worry about that too much. But uh, it's more, you know, I, I do think that women in general put up with hot flashes, uh, you know, much more than they have to. Also, you know, no right, matter what. right. But 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 hormone
3: therapy. Just going back to that is particularly useful for. Perimenopause, it really helps like balance out. If you're having a very severe perimenopause, which I I have had, and I have noticed that hormone therapy changed the game for me. I have my brain back. I have my you know I don't get as many hot flashes. All of that, and I I've talked to many women who are like, oh, but really, you're on the hormones. Like it's still so prevalent. It's so crazy.
2: And 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 on top of that, like a real another moment that really struck me in the story is when you go to your doctor, Susan. Mm-hmm. and even kind of knowing everything you do and being curious about the topic like you still walk out of there without a prescription feeling kind of unset. like even it, it it's just so amazing to me that even at at your level you would you would go to the doctor and the doctor could just make you feel like you don't need it there are women who are less who are less educated about it who've done who've done less research into it so i only can imagine what it's like for them when they go to the doctor
4: you know The funny thing is that I think that when women go in and they say, I do think that in general, and that's why I did think that the Better Things episode was so weird, but if a woman goes into the doctor and says, I'm having a million hot flashes a day, it's torturing me, I'm in hell, then there's like a little bit more clarity. What I find interesting are the women like me who are like, Okay, I'm functioning. I'm not like I'm not you know, lying in bed all day, but I'm not happy about these changes. Is mm-hmm. there something I can do about it? Right. And I felt in that meeting very whiny um, and that I hadn't met some you know some clear threshold. And I, I sometimes wonder, what did because she was definitely my age, And I thought to myself sometimes, is she having, no symptoms, and therefore can't sympathize, or maybe she's having like a horrible menopause and or, you know perimenopause, and so felt like, "Oh, sister, come to me when you have a real problem." I mean I right. don't know, but i i I will tell you something else that I didn't even mention in the articles I went I love my primary care doctor, but I spoke to her about it first, and she said, "We really only treat this when you are." When you, You're only menopausal when you haven't had your period for a year, meaning like, okay, after a year, we could give you hormone therapy. But I don't think she even realized that you could treat perimenopause because I think she mm. just didn't even, she was like, oh, hormone therapy, it's for menopausal women and you're not in menopause yet. Well,
2: that's the other thing that's so, I mean, and, 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 and you mentioned it in your piece and it's certainly gotten some attention before, just what they don't fucking know, what doctors yeah. aren't taught. Yeah. It's, it's just really- mind boggling
4: especially, you know, primary care, family medicine, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think they have, you know, people, um, all of the medical school people I spoke to who were interested in this topic freely admitted that the training was absolutely inadequate. They had... Interesting reasons for why that is, which is that a lot of these medical schools train their um, students at clinics. And a lot of those clinics serve um, very generally underserved populations who are dealing with um, even more pressing medical, you know, life-threatening. So menopause, one of the things about menopause, not life-threatening really uncomfortable, but like their hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular, those are much higher priorities. So those tend to get, the the residents tend to get um, the most exposure to those kinds of issues. But I do think that primary care doctors, family medicine doctors, even, I think a lot about a friend of mine who had, um, she went through menopause, she was on the pill, she went off the pill and suffered immediately um, menopausal symptoms, which she knew. But some of what she was suffering was also unbelievable joint pain in her hands. Yeah And even though she knew it was brought on by menopause, she was still going to see rheumatologists and people who specialized in autoimmune disease. Like she was really worried she had an autoimmune disease. And if the doctors she'd been seeing had known she'd got just gone off the pill and understood what that meant because I think they even did know that, I think they would have said like, oh, maybe you should go back on like a low you know like a low dose estrogen patch and let's mm-hmm. see if it helps the joint pain, right? because she was really having a hard time. So I, I just think that it's not just primary care doctors or family medicine doctors or internists who need to think about this, but um, orthopedists and rheumatologists and autoimmune specialists, you know, disease specialists, um, neurologists, um, psychiatrists. Yes. Psychiatrists. Right.
2: Yes. Psychiatrists. I was about to say, because I really, you know, I've had, I've had my share of depression and, and, I really think that some of the depression I had in my fifties was absolutely because of hormones, absolutely because of perimenopause Mm
3: -hmm. and anxiety, anxiety, ADHD symptoms that just like really become much more pronounced because if you have, if you already had like an ADHD that you were sort of functioning through with the brain fog of, of perimenopause, Mm -hmm. it -hmm. exacerbates that as well. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Psychiatrists. I have a question. Another question. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Why do you think there's so much shame and discomfort mm-hmm. about talking about this? Because I've even had this with like female gynecologists where they're like, yeah, it's almost like it's like a secret, like we're using whisper voices about it. Why do you think that
4: is? Is it ageism, massage? Like, what the fuck? How are we still here? I, yeah. I mean, I think it's just general discomfort with women's sexuality and the fact that they're complaining about the end of it, like it's unseemly or something. I love the quote yeah. in the article, which I, I did not say, so I feel like I can admire yeah. it, but the friend who said to her um, doctor who seemed uncomfortable, it was a gynecologist who seemed uncomfortable talking about even the prospect of vaginal dryness. And the friend said to me, I was like, you know, aren't you a vagina doctor? I use that thing for sex. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I respect the doctor I was seeing. I know she has these very intense time limits. But just I just couldn't imagine saying to her something like uh, let's say I wanted to say I've lost interest in sex, you know, that just felt like so outside the purview of what the emotional space was in that room, you know. Right. For a lot of women, it's it brings a lot of grief. And it's not that we think that estrogen like picks up your libido, but it does help with vaginal dryness. And, you know, people are pretty turned off by sex when it's painful. And that is a very common symptom of perimenopause and menopause.
3: Yes. And the grief too is it? I mean, it's really a time that nobody talks about where you really need to be tending to your mental health. I mean, what we were just all talking about. But because men don't go through this very obvious, oh, I've changed. I'm in another stage of my life. I'm having a physical metamorphosis there. We have to process our aging. I think in a way they don't
4: have to, or at least not until later. I think that's profound. And I also think that women tend to think that whatever, and I think that the medical establishment often thinks, and maybe it even better things not to keep referring to that show, yeah. but doctors think, like, oh, you're losing your looks, and your children are leaving for college, and your parents are aging. Like, of course, you're depressed, anxious, you know, mm-hmm. don't feel right, um, I've lost energy. Uh, feel addled, you're rattled, you know. And some of that is true. And that is what's terrible about menopause is that for many women... All those things do converge. I mean, i I have to admit that I used to go I used to go on a run and there was a hill that was like just almost a little more than halfway through my run, and I called it Menopause Hill because in my mind, I know the timing. I knew that when I turned fifty two my parents would be eighty six and my kids would be teenagers. Like that's a lot to take on at once. And a friend of mine actually um, pointed out to me that when her mom went through a horrible uh, menopausal transition, her kids had left the house and she was retired. You know, she had been a teacher, I guess, and she could like deal with it. But my friend had two young kids, was working full time, was now dealing with her mother. It's, it does hit women of our era, I think, at a less fortuitous time for sure. Well,
3: right. a lot of times also it's hitting us as our children are hitting puberty, And I think that that is so intense to be in the exit when they're in the, we're on the on ramp and we're on the off ramp. And it is a very intense time emotionally to, because you can really be reactive. You have a lot of emotional changes, a lot of anger. And then you have a kid who's also really reactive because their hormones are in flux. You know,
4: like what a perfect storm of situation. I think the piece was meaningful for some people. I can't remember who it was, but somebody definitely came to me and said, now I realize that that weird period of time that preceded the end of my parents' marriage, my mom seemed to change like almost overnight. And I now think that was menopause. And wow. You
2: know, you know, and this is something that when Darcy Stanky, who wrote a book about menopause, oh, um, came on the show, she said really she good. felt like, there is, she, like there's so much shame and fear in part because mothers don't talk to their daughters about it
4: yeah and I don't know what that is about, either. I mean, I think it's again, it's what is that about? because maybe it is tied to sex and sex with your father, and like it's just um, and also, by the way, I'm not sure women made the connection between all the emotions that they were feeling and that, that they were also menopausal, so maybe they don't think to say, "Yeah, I went through a really hard time, and I'm pretty sure it was menopause. um maybe they didn't yeah. realize maybe they just thought that they had changed. I don't know.
3: Yeah, and it's also mortality. You know, so, you know, you don't. The last thing you want to be talking about with your kids, in some ways, is about being older. You don't want to like sort of trigger those fears in them about your mortality and that the, how that. I mean, at least for me, my kid, anytime they think about me dying, it's like a you know, it's like whoa whoa. You know, you're you're getting older. I don't want to <laughs> hear about it. You know, it's a really insecure and sad feeling. And I think maybe that's part of it, too. But but generally, I don't think we t- we're we open enough about our bodies and sexuality with our kids, even though at this point you would think that we we would be, you know, you think we'd be more open.
2: Are there countries that get it more right than us? I mean, I know that's a dumb question. Of course, there are.
4: I'm told, I mean, I have read a little bit about this and I can't recall. I think there are countries certainly where like age is. I mean, our country, I think in part because it's so hyper capitalist and we're, you know, we're so marketed ideals of youth constantly. I think that it has to be one of the worst offenders. I do think that women suffer fewer symptoms in countries where the diet is healthier. And like, I Mm -hmm. I do, there's like pretty good research to suggest that women who do, um, you know, improve their diet and improve their exercise will have fewer hot flashes. But I did not, I I have no qualms about not belaboring that in the piece because although some women do make that choice and they can do it, the food, the culture that we're in, it's the air that we breathe. And we, you know, there are so many good reasons for women to lose weight and exercise. And we know that it tends not to happen, at least pre wygovi you know? And so um, the last thing I wanted to do is just give women more reason to feel terrible about their failure to control their own hot flashes. I mean, one woman, yeah, she said to me, the doctor told me if I cut out caffeine, I would cut out my hot flashes. And so every time I had a hot flash, I felt guilty that I hadn't managed to cut out caffeine. By the way, we don't even know that that's really a thing. And here she is, right. not only is she having a hot flash, but she's feeling like shame and guilt and it's her fault. And oof, like, I just, I don't want to go there. What do you think about,
3: so the past few years, there's definitely been like menopause is having a moment, right. But it's like really in like the beauty and wellness and like, Mm -hmm. it's like a, it's like a girl boss moment. It's a girl bossification of menopause without really talking about like vaginal atrophy, say, you know, what did you think about that as you were researching this piece and sort of seeing, seeing this like celebrity moment of menopause, but, but is that going to change anything? I guess is the question.
4: Well, I think anything that increases the conversation is probably healthy because as you have said yourself, like the shame around it is part of the problem. You know, it's funny because I, I really I think it's an absolutely valid choice if you're suffering to consider hormone therapy. It's also a totally valid choice to decide, like for whatever reason, like eh, it's not for me. You know, some women just don't like the feeling of it, um or the idea of it. Um I, I don't like the companies that market their products as specifically like hormone-free menopausal supplements because that reinforces the idea, I think, that the hormones are like, oh, we don't want hormones. That's like EPA or something like that. We don't want to go near that. Um, And I will give Naomi Watts, who has a, a new brand called Stripes, um, I give her props for, um, recognizing that, you know, right. she, she obviously is not selling hormones on her site, but she does acknowledge on her site, um, that that's an option for women. And she, you know, there is information about menopausal hormone therapy on the site. Um, so I, I appreciate that, but I, I, I mean the explosion of wellness products, fine. You want to like market a moisturizer called glisten for women who feel their skin is drying. Okay, we all right enjoy buying a potion or a lotion sometimes just because the packaging is pretty and it makes us feel like thoroughly or you know, whatever it is. The supplements I think I, I have more problems with because they're just less regulated than FDA, you know, approved medications and yeah. they seem mostly like a waste of money and they um yeah, they've just been much less less studied than menopausal hormone therapy and they're not regulated and who knows what's in them. So
3: what would you tell somebody who's at this sort of after you have all this knowledge now, right? So what would you tell somebody who's at the beginning or even at anywhere, mm-hmm. any stage of this journey? What what is your advice for women who are going through it?
4: Well, the first one is you know, find a practitioner who has time and patience and energy and training in this because there are um, sites that will, you know, alloy as a site where you can like plug in your information and off it goes and they'll spit out what they think is the great, you know, hormonal combination for you. And, you know, and then a doctor kind of rubber stamps it. And if there's something more complicated, you will get a text from somebody to talk to you about it. But I feel like the information is not as complete as you would. Ne- so for example, Alloy did tell me based on my, you know, symptoms and period, um, the fact that I was perimenopausal to go on low dose birth control. Um, but you know, it was interesting when I spoke to somebody, an actual doctor about it, she said, Yeah, there's always low dose birth control. But she also said, How old are you? Huh, yeah, because you know, you're It does increase the risk of clotting, you know, and she, just the fact that she had like flagged that for me, I just felt like I had more information and it was a better reason to remember like, okay, you can stay on the pill for a year or two, but like not forever, you know, whereas I don't know that Ally wasn't going to necessarily follow up with me and say like, okay, now it's been three years. Are you still on the pill? You know, I don't know. So I guess probably you do need to renew your prescriptions and put in information. And I think it's very, very well-intentioned. I just personally would rather talk to a doctor um, because and and see the look on their face when they... It wasn't just that the doctor said to me like, oh, well, you know, it does increase the risk of clotting. I saw her get like a flash of concern across her face. And that stayed with Mm -hmm. me even more than like the information. So it's just, um, you know, by the way, also Alloy can't insert an IUD. So they're not going to tell you, for you, the best solution might be an IUD and um, and like a, a low dose estrogen patch, which is a solution that m- just FYI, like if you were going to do an ad that was like most gynecologists themselves, like a lot of the gynecologists I spoke to when they're perimenopausal do do an IUD and a low dose estrogen patch. Yeah. So anyway, all this is to say that what I would tell people is find a practitioner, make sure it's somebody who's not twisting your arm one way or the other, and just like you just need to talk through your risks, your family history. you know there are sites that allow you to calculate your breast cancer risk based on your family history, the kinds of things that happen to you when you get mammograms uh, and what the age that you got your period. And so I, I encourage women to, you know to do that and you know you'd be surprised. I myself was surprised by how high my, my personal breast cancer risk was. Um, and so it's something I keep in mind as I make these decisions but it's just about being informed and making sure that you have the conversation. I try not to urge anyone to go on menopausal hormone therapy. I mean, it does carry some risk and there are things we don't know and everybody has to make the calculation based on how much are they suffering, how much risk tolerance do they have and um, how long they intend to stay on the hormones. That too.
2: right? Can we talk for a minute about the power of the Times and doing a piece like this in the Times Magazine? Do you think that, it can be a catalyst for change, a big viral piece like that? All I
4: can tell you is that, um, so first of all, I w- one of the reasons I really mentioned Jake Silverstein is because I think I'm very proud of the piece that I wrote, but a lot of the information in it is out there. It's available. And so what really happened was that I wrote, I hope, what is a very readable piece, and then Jake Silverstein put it on the cover of the magazine, and lo and behold, people... I, I don't mean to sit here and shill for the times. Obviously, it's far from perfect. But I do think that it speaks to how much people, some people, perhaps women in their 50s, especially as opposed to women in their 30s yeah. and 40s, still trust the institution. Many, many, many doctors wrote to us and said, thank you. Or they said, I hand this out, or I have a QR, QR code so that like my my clients can... like snap it on their phone and read it. I, I It's hard for me to measure the impact, but I do feel that it has somehow changed the conversation. I'll tell you this too, is that a dear friend of mine told me that his daughter at the University of Chicago read every word of it and mm-hmm. she doesn't read everything that I write, but she read that. And I love the idea of a 22 year old or she's actually younger than that, knowing what's coming, knowing yes. when she gets to it. Did you guys read that Sandra Low piece that ran in the Atlantic when it came out many, many years ago mm-hmm. about her own experience of menopause? Mm-mm. It's great because it's Sandra Low. I mean, she's an amazing writer, but I'll never forget because I was probably 30 when I read it and I free or maybe I was 35, 36. I freaked out because she made it sound so terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It? And finally, I mean, really terrifying, like stark, raving, mad, like horrible experience. Yeah. And finally, at the end, she mentions that she took an estrogen cream and everything got a little bit better. But it was like such a side note to the bigger story, which was like, ladies, menopause is hell. I think many women, when they hit menopause, not only are they hit by like a ton of bricks of symptoms, but they're just shocked. They had no idea it was coming. No one told them it was coming you hear about the hot flashes, but you don't really get it. And you don't hear about the brain fog so much. And you don't hear about the mood swings. And I feel
2: like, I feel like I heard about the sexual discomfort, like five minutes before it happened to me.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because who wants to talk about vaginal dryness? I mean, those words trip up. And,
2: and also vaginal atrophy just needs a new name. It's just a terrible, terrible a new name.
4: <laughs> it's called menopausal genitourinary <laughs> syndrome.
2: I. That's not better. <laughs>
4: Uh, is it not better. Let me make sure I have that. Hold on a second. Let me look at Genito urinary, menopausal, genito u- genito urinary syndrome of menopause. Okay, they should just
3: call it like busted vagina. It's like there's like no, <laughs> <laughs>
4: like my vagina. Hurts. That's exactly this. This ain't good. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much for doing this, Susan. This was just great.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening
3: to Everything Is Fine. We're your hosts. I'm. I was going to say, I'm Kim (laughs) France. (laughs) I've done that before. I'm Jen Romolini, and I'm Kim France. <laughs> if you like the show, please rate and review it across the platforms. It really helps uh, people find the show. It makes a difference. If you want to support the show, please join our Patreon. Throw us a couple dollars there. That helps us pay for production. It's patreon.com backslash everything is fine. This week, you'll be finding our live show on Patreon, which is available only to live people who were there live and Patreon members, patrons. Um, if you want to follow us on social media. We're at EIF podcast. We're on Facebook with a private and robust Facebook group. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. You can find Kim on her blog, girls of a certain age.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited by the amazing Natalie Rivera. We love you, Natalie. And we'll be back next week.